the views and comments expressed on the Space Show by its guests, callers, and listeners belong to them. The Space Show and its hosts serve only as a platform and are not responsible for others' comments or views. All topics discussed on the Space Show are primarily for educational purposes. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. It's the Space Show with Dr. David Livingston. Broadcasting for seven continents, consistently bringing you quality news and interviews with the best and brightest minds in the new space economy. Here is the founder and host of the Space Show, the man who best articulates the vision of space commercial enterprise, Dr. David Livingston. Good afternoon, listeners, and welcome to the Sunday Space Show program, and I am your uh, host and guide for today's show, and you'll understand the reference guide in just a minute. And welcome to our program, and it's going to be a good one because I have been talking to our guest today, Julian Knott, a couple of times, and uh, he's really exciting and a lot of fun to talk with. And boy, I- I'm about ready to change um, our introduction, Julio. Instead of saying, Julian, instead of saying we go to the moon because we may have to modify it after today we may go to titan because so uh we'll we'll wait and see about that listeners i do have a big announcement to make for you some of you may be aware that chrome which is google has demanded that websites change to an ssl security formation and we have until july to conform with their requirement And if not, Chrome is going to tag websites that are not SSL-conformed as not being secure. And there are some reports, though not totally confirmed, that Google may downlist or delist you in in their search engine if you are not a secure website. So um, this applies to websites that don't do any e-commerce at all. Apparently, they want the security encryption for web security. So we have been working to do this for the Space Show and One Giant Leap Foundation and my personal site, davidlivingston.com. And for small websites, this is a pain in the you-know-what-to-do and we have had to reach out to our hosting company, InMotionHosting.com, for a lot of help because not always are the websites, sometimes they were configured and set up a couple of years ago or maybe even longer, can be configured easily for SSL. Uh, so I think we have done this properly, but now I'm asking all of you, if you notice changes or glitches or problems at the spaceshow.com or onegiantleapfoundation.org to please call them to my attention as they may be a casualty of our having to have made changes to accommodate the Chrome SSL requirement. For those of you that have websites and you don't know about this requirement or haven't done anything about it, um, I'm taking Chrome and Google at their word that they're going to flag sites as being unsecure. Uh, That's all I have to go on. So we did conform as much as uh, I hated the process of doing it. Uh, So I just put it out there. And please do, if you notice 
glitches on our website or anything like that, call them to my attention so I can get them over to Spencer and to InMotion Hosting to see how to uh, take care of them. And, and I thank you for all of that. Otherwise, shows as normal in the coming week. A uh, couple of uh, other announcements. Our telephone number for today, one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three. No call screeners. Let the phone ring, and uh, we'll get you up on air as quickly as possible. Please do remember that the toll-free line is our preferred way of speaking with our guest today, and we hope that you will use it. But you can also use email, drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com, and you can also use our blog to send us questions and comments for our guest, and that is at our website, thespaceshow.com, all the way to the far right to the upcoming show menu, and this is the first show listed, and that is also the blog and archive page, so open it up, and then, as always, you would scroll down to the bottom, post your question or comment, and I will get it almost instantly and integrate it into the show right away. But again, use the toll-free number if you can, 1-866-687-7223. A couple of other quick reminders in the upper left menu on our homepage. Uh, under support, you'll find our store with Cafe Press for those of you interested in Space Show logo wear and, and items such as that. Um, also, there is a Listen Live button in that other upper left menu. This tells you how to listen to live broadcast shows, how to listen to archived MP3s off of our website, and then podcasts, including Alexa, off of our um, podcasting servers that we use. And if you have any questions or comments, don't hesitate to email me at drspace at thespaceshow.com. Everything we do is archived. You can very, very fast download our shows if you have high-speed Internet. I wonder if anybody has an old telephone line modem anymore. Um, and then you can also just uh, listen real quickly off of our website uh, as well. Your choice. And um, then also I want to call your attention to supporting the Space Show, which is center right on our homepage. And uh, do remember we're a 501c3 nonprofit listener-supported program. So if you like our programs, our topics, and you like participating with us, please help us out and financially contribute and support the Space Show. We are a nonprofit 501c3 with one O-N-E, giantleapfoundation.org. So if you pay federal U.S. taxes, you do get a tax deduction for your gift. If you pay California uh, taxes, uh, then you're going to get a tax deduction too. If California goes the route of Cal 3 and separates into three states, I really don't know what will happen with our, our state nonprofit. I guess that will be something to be determined, right? Uh, but right now, if you're a California taxpayer, you get a deduction as well. If you have any questions, visit our onegiantleapfoundation.org website or email me at drspace at the space show. Now, we also do have sponsors, and uh, our sponsors get a banner ad going across our homepage. They can change that banner ad as frequently as they want. And I also read a short promo message from all of our sponsors on full-length or longer shows, and today is a full-length show. So I would, for the first segment of our program today, like to thank Northrop Grumman, which is a leading security company providing innovative systems, products, and solutions for government and commercial customers on a global basis uh, with capabilities and technologies from undersea to outer space and cyberspace. 
the Space Foundation at spacefoundation.org is a sponsor as well, and they have their annual very, very authentic and accurate The Space Report now available. This is a must for people to want to understand the growth and the economics and the finances of the space industry, including both public and private sectors. You'll see it on their homepage, spacefoundation.org. The Space Development Network is an online organization that allows you, uh, as an advocate, to join with others to advance the plan for space development, and they're looking for people with a wide variety of interest and talks. It's a free network. Check it out at spacedevelopment.org. I'm a member of it. I filled out their forms. Um, I was unable to make their first telecom. I actually forgot about it. I was watching a baseball game. Shame on me. But they do have telecoms and other events that you'll want to participate in. So, again, spacedevelopment.org. And then also for the first segment, the National Space Society is our sponsor. In addition to ISDC that they hold every year around Memorial Day, they support many different activities and uh, subdivisions in space that we're supportive of, such as space settlement. So check them out at nss.org. And so that brings me to our program today and to introducing to you Julian Knott and his company, Knott Technologies, N-O-T-T. Um, and he consults with various organizations throughout the world uh, on various different topics. But he is really a global pioneer, a global design leader and construction expert on lighter-than-aircraft, uh, lighter-than-air aircraft, balloons, blimps, and airships uh, for scientific purposes and other things like that. Uh, he was uh, a major consultant with the Red Bull Jump a couple of years ago. He has also been involved with many different motion pictures and other things. Uh, he has worked with NASA and JPL uh, for balloons for planetary destinations, particularly Venus and Titan, which we're going to talk about. So his full bio and information about all of his activities and accomplishments, some of it is on our website when you read about him, but his website is not N-O-T-T, Com, and you can find it all there. And I would really urge you to familiarize yourself because you will be hearing a lot more from him uh, in coming space show years. Also, he has put on his homepage a paper that you should read. It's two pages long. And you should check it out because we're going to be uh, addressing this paper uh, on the show today uh, regarding Titan and it's called Titan, a distant but enticing destination for human visitors. And uh, you can read it fairly quickly. And again, we're going to be referencing that in a little while on today's space show. And it is on his homepage, again, not nott.com. Julian, welcome to the space show. This is a real treat and honor to get to know you and to uh, bring you to the Global Space Show audience. How are you today? Thank you. Well, I'm very happy to be here. I'm very well. Just got back from London, and, um, you, you know, it's a privilege to be on your show. You have wonderful visitors, wonderful guests. Thank you. Well, thank you, and people like you make it wonderful. So, uh, God, without people like you and what you've accomplished, there, there simply would be no space show. So... Um, I'm just a little cog. I get I get you guys to talk about things, but you're the people that go out there and accomplish real things and 
and have breakthroughs. So that's very, very cool. Let's start out um, with ballooning. So I, I'm going to start out with, with Red Bull, although you, you have a history long before that. But we covered the Red Bull jump extensively on the on the space show and uh, uh, Dr. Clark has been a guest on the show and some of the others have as well uh, even before Red Bull so um, I, I know it was several years ago but kind of as a consultant and an insider uh, what do you remember that might be something that we don't know about or we need to be reminded about uh, we did talk a little bit about your ideas of redundancy maybe that's a good place to start because uh, a lot of space advocates uh, sort of forget sometimes or dismiss the idea of redundancy, especially if it comes with a price tag. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things about being uh, uh, someone who's both a designer and a pilot, um, you know, when you, when you fly in different things and you really understand what's going on, you nothing focuses the mind more than being up there and, um, you, you know, I would say redundancy in the engineering sense. That, that's one of my favorite words. Um, yeah, and, and I mean, just thank you for all the comments. I, I've done, you know, I've been ballooning all my adult life and set 79 world ballooning records. And um, I built the first hot air balloon with a pressure cabin, and it is in the Smithsonian in the Air and Space Museum in the fabulous new building at Dallas Airport. That Dallas as in Washington, not not Dallas as in Texas. And it's right alongside Alan Eustace's equipment, because I after I'd helped Red Bull for a period, um, then then I helped Alan Eustace and Alan didn't care about the publicity everyone said about Red Bull. Al, Alan now holds the, the altitude record. Hundred and thirty six thousand feet for parachute jump. Wow. <laughs> um but so, right, I, I worked with Red Bull for a while. When they came to me, they wanted to do the jump in the same way as Joe Kittinger, meaning a simple open gondola and, uh, and a pressure suit. And I persuaded them that a cabin was a much better way to go. The balloon cabin I built that's in the Smithsonian, one strong man can lift it. So the cabin doesn't have to be heavy, and it doesn't have to be as complicated as you might think. And you have wonderful redundancy. You have, you can be kept alive by the pressure cabin, or you can be kept alive by the pressure suit. Uh, it's very important. That, so, one would think that the equipment to pressurize would make it heavy. So, h how does it not be very heavy in terms of mass? Well, the way we did it was very, very simple, um, and that's to have a cabin that is sealed very tightly. Um, the, the one I, the one of mine that's in the Smithsonian, and all the aeronautical ex aviation medicine experts said it wouldn't work because they're familiar with airplanes built with rivets, and they always leak. But if it, what, what we've always built is cabins, we've built several pressure, built and flown several pressure cabins, and they're single piece composites, and they just don't leak at all. And what I did was um, that. Um, I'm simply breathing with an open circuit oxygen system. And so the oxygen, as I breathe out, that goes into the cabin. And it's not so much leaks, but as the temperature falls, the cabin pressure is going to fall. And just simply the, the gas coming out that you're breathing, that's enough to keep the pressure up. Couldn't be simpler. And, that, and, that, and I mean, you don't need anything more complicated for a, for a flight lasting a few hours.
could you extrapolate that and put it in a space tourism capsule or vehicle, suborbital, not orbital? Oh, well, suborbital, why not? If it, if it, if it, I mean, I have no idea how Spaceship 2 or Blue Origins, I have no idea how they pressurize, but that just doesn't have to be very complicated. But but because you believe in redundancy, I'm I'm guessing you'd still put the tourists or the participants, as they're legally defined, in a spacesuit of some sort. Well, and of course, as I understand it, neither Spaceship Two nor uh, Blue Origin is, is, are, are people going to use um, spacesuits. But it, and of course, that, that's alarming in the sense that you've got a pressure vessel and your life's totally dependent on the pressure vessel. But of course. Every submarine that exists, if the pressure vessel fails, everybody inside is going to die. So, um, you, you know, if you build with high safety factors and test carefully, test meticulously, uh, you can obviously get what, whatever you think is an acceptable level of, of, of reliability. Think of all the uh, cool logo wear that's going to show up in the videos and stuff of the tourists for the company. <laughs> That might be blocked if you were in a cumbersome spacesuit uh, of some time. You could always, you could always have a look at race cars. I mean, you could go with marketing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know that's how the private sector gets stuff done, isn't it? Um, well, yeah. So I, I guess the space suits could look like a, a racing car, right? With with yeah. all the logos all over the spacesuit. Yeah. I mean, well, why not? <laughs> marketing people lack no. I'm not short of imagination. They can always get the logos on there somewhere. Um, how confident were you uh, that the the Red Bull project would reach the desired altitude and everything would work and, and he would have a safe uh, world record-breaking jump? Were, were you like, what was your confidence interval? Was it like 100%, 99%? What, what did you really think now that it's all over with? Well, both for Red Bull and for... Alan Eustace, um, the the flights were made with the, with with standard, what I call big scientific plastic balloons, polyethylene balloons, and people have been making balloons exactly like this since the since the 60s, and they're very well understood. The hard part always is the launch, um, because once the balloon is in the air, then doesn't matter within any reasonable extent. It doesn't matter what gusts you, you get. They just push the balloon sideways. But when the balloon's on the ground, these balloons are very tall, hundreds of feet tall at launch. And um, while, while you're still on the ground, you know, the gusting wind gusts are a real problem. But once this kind of balloon has been released, um, again, there's, there's experience of thousands or tens of thousands of them. I mean, it, unlike a hot air balloon, it's just a passive system. There's just a surplus of helium to give you some extra lift to carry you upwards. And once you start going up, you pretty much keep going up. There's occasionally these balloons fail going through the jet stream, but not very often. Uh, so the confidence... Is, is really high in the balloon, but was there a lot of confidence that you'd reach the desired altitude, the objective altitude? Oh, yeah, that's kind of... I mean, don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but, but balloons are, are really simple physics and a million details. Um, that You know you, you know the weight of the system, you know the volume of the balloon, you, you know what altitude it's going to get to. 
what what about the jump itself any any uh worries about that or was that also um tried and proven simple uh, open the hatch and out you go well i mean for alan we did um three dummy drops um from high altitude and they you know those were the first one was quite scary um, at the, the dummy spun, spun very, very fast, fast enough that it would have killed him. And when we're all sitting in the control room after, after the jump, after the jump after the drop, watching the video, and everyone's chin dropped. <laughs> and, um, you know, it required quite a lot of modification of the parachute. Uh, but, you know, three dummy drops gives you a lot of confidence. And then Alan jumped from, in round numbers, 65,000 feet, 100,000 feet, and 135,000 feet. Um, what I don't like, what I didn't like, is, um, you know, on, on, on back to redundancy, um, you know, I always feel, you know, I always want to have um, a plan B. And for everything I've ever done, plan B is a damn good parachute. And, of course, for, for these high-altitude parachute jumps, um, at, at 90,000 feet, Alan was going down at 820 miles an hour. And you can't say, well, hang on a minute, I, I've changed my mind. <laughs> you know, once you've released, that's it. There's, there's no redundancy. Uh-huh. Um, so that's why you did a lot of testing ahead of time. But I, I think, you know, um, Alan Eustace is one of the, one of the principal people who, who started Google. And, I mean, he's just an extraordinarily knowledgeable and capable engineer. And um, I think he felt, and I think reasonably enough, that, you know, he had got a complete system that would do everything. I just want to stress, you know, my, my part was I designed the balloon system that took him up. I was there or right through and followed it all carefully. Um, but the, the design of the parachute by... Uh, UPT and so on. That I, I was closely in touch with all of that, but that wasn't my special area. And I mean, just as a general comment, you know, I, I love all this stuff about life on Titan and you know the possibilities of life on Titan and so on. I mean, just what I know about is balloons. All these other and a certain amount about physiology because I'm a pilot, um, and that's important. Understanding oxygen and pressure suit stuff. But I mean, everything else when we're talking about life on Titan. You know, take as you find. And if you think I'm talking rubbish, um, um, then, you know, please email or phone and complain. Um, was there a, how did he stop spinning or what was the strategy to avoid getting into a lethal spin? Oh, well, what was, that was very interesting that um, the system was designed... Uh, it, it seemed just natural. Alan and all his equipment weighed roughly the same as two people. Um, so the, the system was based around uh, a standard tandem parachute jump rig. And here's where that didn't turn out to be a good idea. And in a standard tandem jump, the instructor, the guy on top, uh, wants to be able to turn easily to give the passenger, the person underneath, a nice experience. And so um, the suspension goes, is in the middle of the back, and it, it's easy to turn. And, of course, that meant it was very easy to make the whole thing spin. 
Um, but what was done was that uh, was to move the suspension roughly up to the shoulder blades, so that if Alan did start to spin, um, he would spin, he would swing outwards, and that would damp the spin the, the spin very quickly. And on the actual jump, Alan turned between 136,000 feet and 12,000 feet, but the parachute opened. He went roughly a half turn in one direction and a half turn in the other direction. It was completely stable by the time it was all worked out. Um, would you, uh, do you think someone will beat that record? Um, I mean, who knows? Who knows? I've got records. Some of my balloon records have stood since 1984, and others, you know, stood for a few years. And, I mean, <laughs> um, you, you know, the hard part about forecasting is predicting the future. Um, is there um, an altitude limitation for the balloon? Well, when, when I started, you know, 25, 30 years ago, sending a balloon to 110, 120,000 feet seemed... Kind of that was it. You know, one percent of the atmosphere left or thereabouts. How could you go higher? But the Japanese have sent balloons to a uh, hundred, quite small balloons, uh, quite light balloons, payloads about 10, 10 kilograms, payloads about twenty pounds. The Japanese have sent balloons to a hundred and seventy thousand feet, where it's one thousandth of the atmosphere. It's about one millibar. Um, and, you know, the atmosphere d decays exponentially, or is it logarithmically? So you can't say really... I, I mean, the reason that NASA says um, well, at 80 miles, the reason NASA says 80 miles is, is, is space is because that's the lowest level at which an orbit, a satellite will remain in a stable orbit and not be slowed down by the atmosphere and fall back to Earth. So, um, you know, we've got to whatever it is, 170,000 feet, that's 35 miles or something. Yeah, so actually it's about 62 miles, but oh. but they go a little higher than that. Um, so, Wait, but so hang on, 62 miles, that's 100,000 meters of Von Karman limit. Right. Uh, as opposed to the NASA limit, which is... Von Karman is that that's the limit there. That defines space, supposedly. Yeah, that, that, if, that, that an airplane, a you know, jet, quote, jet plane, would have to go faster and faster and faster. And when it gets to 62 kilometers, um, it has to go to orbital speed. Uh, and that, but that's a different definition of space. The, the, the Von Karman line, 100 kilometers, that was what was used for, you know, the X Prize. And you, you know, the, the definition of space. <laughs> it's what your craft can get to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so is this balloon or something similar to what you guys use for Red Bull, is that what you're talking about when when you talk about being able to get a balloon to Venus or to uh, Titan down the road? Or are Venus and, and Titan balloons very, very different? Oh, I mean, I think they'd be very, very different. I mean, I'd love to talk... I think... That, Venus balloons are really fascinating because Venus is the one place in the solar system which balloons just are unequivocally better than anything else. Talk about Titan balloons, but Titan, you can talk about airplanes and drones. But Venus, the problem is the surface temperature is 460 Celsius, 800 and something Fahrenheit. So 
you can dream up billion-dollar craft to land on the surface. Uh, but a thousand-dollar balloon can fly very nicely. The altitude is about 50 kilometers. The temperature, room temperature, and the density is about 60% of sea level. So it's an ideal place for probably just a, a rather simple fabric balloon because what you're looking for is long duration, um, weeks or months. And so it's rather different from these very large, very light balloons uh, used by Allen, used by Red Bull, where you're going to a level where the density is down by a factor of 100, say. On Venus, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's six-tenths of Earth density. Are there plans to... Uh actually do a balloon mission to Venus? There, there most certainly are. I'm, I've been actively working with people at JPL. Something that was realized uh, quite recently, three or four years ago, and it, to me it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, you know, the big picture, Venus is the most Earth-like of the planets, and therefore, you know, if you're worried about preserving Earth, taking care of the Earth, understanding Venus is very valuable. Uh, but because of the high temperatures on Venus, uh, it's very underexplored, and balloons c- could be really valuable. So what's the first thing you'd want to do? One of the principal things you'd want to do is do seismology to learn what is in the interior of Venus. And somebody realized, this is re- where it gets really fascinating as far as I'm concerned, that the density of the atmosphere of Venus, it's, the atmosphere is so dense at the surface that seismic waves actually get transmitted into the atmosphere and um, people, and, and you could perfectly well detect these, these uh, seismic waves, detect them at altitude. And I, I helped JPL, we did an experiment last year flying what is currently called a microbarometer. What it is, it's just a fancy name for an extremely sensitive pressure transducer and they're amazing there are transducers that exist with a resolution not an accuracy with a resolution of tens of parts per billion these can detect extraordinarily sensitive things and what we did was we flew one of these um, flew one of these microbarometers a uh, thousand feet up just <laughs> on a string under a weather balloon and did it in the vicinity of a thing called a thumper. And what a thumper is, it's used by oil search people and so on. It's just a great big block of steel, and you lift it up uh, with a crane about 20 feet, and you just let this block of steel fall to the ground, and it generates little tiny earthquakes of its own. And we were able to measure those, and um, we, me and my colleagues, we're going to do another test for for Venator, for JPL next year. And I think it's fascinating. So even if, if, if you merely sent a rather simple balloon to Venus, uh, which had this microbarometer to do seismology um, and nothing else than, say, just a mass spectrometer to measure the, 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 what the atmosphere is made of, this would be really hardcore science with, a, with the simplest balloon. What about a balloon to um, take people to 50 miles up in the atmosphere of Venus? I mean, we've we've had Jeffrey Landis on the show before who thinks that'd be an ideal area for a settlement. Well, in 
I mean, yes, yes and no. I mean, he and I would both agree that in terms of it being a 50-kilometer altitude, it's a good place to fly lighter-than-aircraft. Um, but I, to me, the idea of people, I, I, I don't know quite exactly what he has in mind, but the actual colonies, large numbers of people there, I, it's hard to believe because, you know, if something goes wrong, then it's downwards and, and you're doomed. Of course, I suppose if, if you have a lot of, if you have a lot of, um, uh, clouds, it is then, you know, again, they have redundancy. If one starts to fail, people can move to another one. See, I'm, 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 there's all these pessimists that think the Earth is going to be destroyed, and I, I, I don't, I'm, I'm not one of those big scale pessimists. I think we're a long way from destroying the Earth. Um, people have been <laughs> talking about the destruction of the Earth since 1000 AD when people climbed up mountains because they thought it was going to be, you, you know, the end, the end of the Earth. Um, you know, sort of misquote Mark Twain, you know. <laughs> Um, um, rumors of my death have been greatly exaggerated. Uh, so, um, okay, but uh, neither, to, to my mind, neither Venus nor um, nor Mars are very hospitable to people. Um, Venus, because people could very comfortably live, as, as indeed, as you say, they could certainly live in a cloud city. Six uh, percent of you know the, the you wouldn't even need pressurization to do it over Venus. On, on Mars, of course, you've got to have a pressure suit, a space suit, and a habitat. Um, and I mean, the, the one place that, 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 to my mind, is, is um, you know, really, that there's no question, the most comfortable place, the easiest place for humans to to, to, to live and move, is, is Titan. And there's this paper I wrote ten years ago, which, which is the one we mentioned. If you go to my website not.com and if you just click on humans on titan you can read about it um and because and, the, the, the huge thing about titan is that it has a dense atmosphere the sea level pressure so, well you can there are methane lakes so the surface level the sea level pressure is about one and a half atmospheres so people could comfortably live there need very warm clothes but not absurdly warm clothes you need warm clothes and um, an air-breathing mask, uh, but you don't need a pressure suit. I mean, you, you could, a human being could go for a stroll on the surface of Titan buying somewhat modified things that you could buy from a sporting goods store, very warm hunting clothes, very, very warm clothes, and scuba gear for breathing. Um, what about radiation? Well, of course, that's the other thing where... Um, in microgravity. The microgravity, I mean, we talked about that before the show. I, I, don't, I don't know anything about that from a physiological point of view. I mean, the, the gravity on Titan is one-seventh of gravity on Earth. And, I mean, you, you, other people can, can tell me because I don't know about deterioration of your bones and, and, and that sort of thing. As far as radiation is concerned... If you were flying, a, uh, again, this is a little outside my area, but obviously on, on the surface of Mars, you're very much exposed to the solar wind and so on. I think Venus at 50 kilometers, there's plenty of atmosphere above you um, so that you'd be quite well protected. On Titan, the, the, the atmosphere is very, very thick. 
because uh, when, when gravity is one-seventh and the pressure is still 50% greater than Earth, that's saying to you there's an awful lot of atmosphere there. The atmosphere is... The, the mass of the atmosphere per unit area is something like seven or eight times as big as it is on Earth, so you'd be fantastically well shielded from cosmic rays and the solar wind. Um. Of course, we are still not at Mars, are we? No. <laughs> and, um, you know, there's a lot of talk and debate and spin going around about are we going to get to Mars? And so um, now you're talking about going a billion miles further, or maybe, um, and we humans can't seem to figure it out how we're going to get to Mars in any kind of reasonable time scale from where we are today although reasonable could be defined by different folks, right, or different agencies. Um, so it, it seems to me that um, the lack of, of ways to get to places in space is as big, if not a bigger stumbling block, than any of the needed survival technologies once you get there. And, I mean, again, in my ignorance, I totally agree with that. I don't, you know, people have been... One of the things that's always forgotten, the space shuttle was designed in the late 60s with existing technology and materials because the, the space shuttle, uh, the STS, was going to be just a temporary gap, you know, temporary uh, uh, spacecraft to use because obviously we were going to Mars next. Um, and so... Been a long time. Fifty years later, no one looks like anywhere like going to Mars. Um, you know, and, and my reaction, is, and this is again, you know, what I know about it balloons. These are my sort of layman's opinions. I don't think anyone's going to Mars until there's some new kind of propulsion. You know, Elon Musk. Uh, you know, a few individuals may perfectly well go, uh, but it's hard to imagine great numbers of people going. I think what, one of the things I always love is that. Uh, Goddard, who invented the rocket, you know, as a young as a sort of teenager in school, um, he was fascinated by all the discoveries relating to Mars and, you know, Percival Lowell. And I, I love it that, that, that Goddard invented the rocket and he told people he wanted to go to the moon because he thought if he told people he wanted to go to Mars, they would think he was totally crazy as opposed to merely far-fetched. And, it, and it's interesting that, you know, uh, I, I, I don't see us getting to Mars anytime soon. But here's the thing. Maybe there's some 16-year-old right now who's being inspired by, you, you know, we live in the golden age of space exploration at every possible level. And, um, um, you know, maybe there's some 16-year-old right now who is going to invent, who has got half-formed in his mind a different kind of propulsion. And, you know, who, who can say that might be invented tomorrow? Um, uh, Larry uh, is our first email question from St. Louis, and listeners' email is drspace at thespatio.com, and the toll-free line, we'd love to get your call, 1-866-687-7223. So Larry said, is there a role for balloons at either Titan or Mars? Oh, well, I mean, it's dead simple. Um, I mean, you, you could fly balloons over Mars, um, but the density of the atmosphere is 
I mean, again, it's just in round numbers, it's like being at 100,000 feet over Earth uh, at near the surface, and it's not an ideal place. And the other thing about being, about Mars is Olympus Mons, which, I, if I remember right, is 35,000 feet high, and you can't steer balloons very well, so there's a huge obstacle to get in your way. Balloons are Titan, by contrast. Um, I think there's, there's huge potential there. Um, and in the simplest way, Titan is um, a, a thousand times better an environment uh, for balloons than the Earth. Um, what what sort of underappreciated, the, the, the single most important thing that limits balloon flight is simply the temperature change between day and night. Uh, that for 230 years, people have been dropping sandbags at sunset, and you can only do that for a certain time. And people have come up with all sorts of schemes to make balloons fly longer. Um, but at tight, uh, because it's, it's 10 times the distance from the sun, so the intensity of the sun is down by a factor of 100, and then below the clouds, the intensity of the sun is down by a factor of a thousand. So the, the day-night temperature swing just doesn't exist for Titan balloons. Of course, the flip side of that is that you can't use solar power very effectively. No, you have to come up with something else. Um, you have a caller waiting to talk to you. Go ahead, sir. Uh, hi, caller. Who are you? Where are you, please? Hey, this is Marshall out in Oklahoma again. Okay. Uh, I was listening and I had the fascinating thought of uh, we have uh, climate change on Earth and everybody's big on that, but uh, you're basically talking about uh, the capacity to put uh, a uh, group of weather balloons, uh, not only on Venus and Mars, but also Titan, and you could basically collect the weather data just like we do weather balloons here on Earth. Is is that re you know, reasonable? No, I, I, I couldn't agree more. No, it's totally accurate. Ah, so um, you did just mention Olympus Mons, and I went, whoops, there's a sticky. There is a capacity to uh, compress the airbag and decompress the airbag to raise and lower your altitude so that you can kind of steer around things. Plus, you have, I presume, a mountain wave effect around, you know, the big mountains. Uh, would the weather balloons survive uh, going around the volcanoes on Mars? Well, of course, the first thing is that if you're, if you're launching weather balloons, and here's an aside. I mean, right now there's this dust storm. I don't know if it's still running. Yeah, it's still running on huge, part of Mars. Uh huh. Huge dust storm, which is a big threat to um, the rovers that are on Mars right now. And so, um, understanding the the weather and the circulation and so on for Mars um, is of direct interest to things on the surface. Um, mm hmm. And, Using balloons to explore Mars, I feel Mars is a—it's not a very good place for balloons, and Mars is oversubscribed. There's all sorts of craft in orbit and on the surface, but launching small balloons—you uh, know—small is broad tends to be easy um, to, to understand the winds better. That would certainly be useful. 
And if you're launching lots and lots of weather balloons, um, you don't mind if you lose a few of them. If you're launching balloons with people on board <laughs> and you lose one in ten, then you're definitely upset about it. If you're launching weather balloons and you launch a hundred and you still have ninety left, well, so what? And mm -hmm. what you talked about, about changing altitude, I mean, there have been a thousand schemes of that sort. The balloon I flew, I made the first crossing of Australia balloon by balloon, that was back in 1984. And we used a balloon exactly like that, which had a helium compartment at the top and an air compartment at the bottom, and you could pump air into it to change the volume of the helium and hence change the altitude. The, the Google Loon project that has, I don't know quite what the published numbers are, but hundreds or thousands of balloons flying, that works in exactly that way. Um, there's one of my favorite people, Professor Voss, Professor Paul Voss has invented what I call a Voss balloon. And that's very clever because instead of compressing the air, he compresses the helium. And it's just a scheme, a system that works. And, and the Voss balloons are wonderful. We should send, you're right, we should send Voss balloons to Mars. Um, he literally sends these balloons out by FedEx. They weigh less than a kilogram. They weigh about half a kilo. He just sends them to, by FedEx all over the world. His balloons have flown uh, in Antarctica and north of the Arctic Circle. Um, and it's lovely. He, he sits in Massachusetts uh, at Smith College, and he, he runs them via satellite. Um, so, so I hope I, I hope that, that's a little bit rambling, but I, I hope that answered the question. Did that anything like answer the question? Oh, well, uh, you happened to mention the 100, which was my original thought as 100 free-floating balloons around Mars would uh, probably uh, get very good data. Plus, you have a couple of uh, weather observatory satellites like we have around Earth, yeah. and the combination of the two would make a rather uh, rigorous weather simulation system that you could mathematically prove out, and then you could start the analysis between Earth's weather, Mars weather, and Venus weather, you know, that would cause a great improvement of weather prediction, I think. And I, I mean, I certainly agree with that. You know, and again, again this is, I, I, I don't really understand, I'm not very knowledgeable about weather forecasting. Or, or years ago, early in my career, I decided to be an end user. I never try to understand the weather. I, <laughs> I, I try to understand the forecasters. We get uh, good. And about 1973, they came up with chaos theory to explain uh, why they couldn't predict the weather. Yeah, yeah. We we work <laughs> with a wonderful guy called Don Day. He's just dayweather.com, I and mean, we think he's the best weather forecaster in the world. And, <laughs> where, know, where, and, and we we as I said way way back that when you actually go out and fly these things, it really focuses your mind on the risks. And we work with Don because we think he's absolutely the most knowledgeable weather forecaster anywhere. Where is the mission being planned to fly these weather balloons on Mars? Oh, th that, that, the mission doesn't exist. <laughs> so where, why isn't it being proposed? Well, because your, me and your caller think it's a great idea. No other reason. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. It's original thought on my part. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Mar Marshall, why don't you propose it? Uh, well, uh, I... 
I like the idea enough. I probably will sit down and try to write up, uh, you know, a 10-page idea report. I mean, that's fairly cheap. The problem is the the next step usually costs like tens of thousands of dollars, and then it goes up from there. Well, now, just send it to the people on the Congressional Committees for Space and the NASA director. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyway, enough for me today. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you you for the question. Uh, Listeners, um, uh, Marshall has vacated the line, so it is available for others to use. 1-866-687-7223. And then email continues, drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, how do you get a balloon to, say, Venus or Titan, and then how do you get it to deploy? I mean, is this needed new technology, or is this like slam dunk and easy to do? Well, I think, obviously, they get their rockets. Um, rockets, are <laughs> rockets are old hat, aren't they? They haven't changed. Well, yeah, I know you'll just stuff it in the ferry and get it there, but you got to get it to open and, and yeah, deploy, yeah. so... Um, there's a, I, I think that that's very easily done. There's a thing called, I wrote a paper about this in uh, 2006. There's a thing called a balut, which is a, you know, half, half balloon, half parachute. Uh-huh. And balutes were used, um, they've been, balutes in various forms are, are used for all sorts of things. Um, but the, but the, the particular Balloons were developed in uh, the 1960s for two purposes. Um, one was to support battlefield flares, and the other was to so that a pilot who had ejected from an aircraft, instead of just coming down under a parachute, his balloon would open. And think of it as a, a hot air balloon with a very big mouth. And if you simply drop a hot air balloon through the atmosphere, just a real simple hot air balloon, it will fill quite quickly. And so after you you launch the thing from an airplane or, well, you launch it at altitude, it fills with air, and then you have a solid-state cartridge, cordite, for want of a better word, an old-fashioned word, you have a solid-state cartridge that, that ignites and heats it, and, and you could fly for some time. And for launching a Venus balloon, I, I'm not, I, I kind of gave up on Mars balloons a long time ago. I, I'm not been very interested in them because in I don't think they're that practical, except for what we talked about, just tracking the weather. Um, and, and for Titan, a, a balloon is a wonderful way to go. Um, so the, um, so you, 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 you come out of the aeroshell after you've got into the atmosphere, you launch the balloon, um, you, you fire up the heat source, and it kind of works rather nicely. Then the balloon is the balloon part is slowly going to cool, and as it's cooling, you pump helium from a tank into the balloon, and as the hot air balloon is losing lift, the helium balloon is gaining lift, and at the right moment, you let the hot air balloon go when it's still got a little lift left, and it flies away. I, th- I think it's I think um, this has never actually been demonstrated, but all the all the elements have such an easy thing to do. I, I don't see that as difficult at all for um, launching a Venus balloon or launching a Titan balloon. Linda is in Seattle with an email for you, and she says you were 
talking earlier about um, how good a place Titan might be for people. What is the role of balloons on Titan in supporting a settlement of people on Titan? Well, I think not much. Um, I mean, they're two separate issues. Titan's the one. It's, <laughs> Titan's still a difficult place to go and live. Don't get me wrong. Don't don't get you know. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's a great place to go and live. But of all the places in the solar system outside of Earth, it's definitely the most comfortable. What we've done a lot of work. I've done a lot of work with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory again. People want would like to send uh, hot air balloons. It's rather, it's rather fascinating, actually. Send hot air balloons to Titan. Um, and it works out rather nicely that um, what people imagine is, is quite a small hot air balloon. We're talking maybe 100 kilos, a couple of hundred pounds total weight. And it's just a rather simple hot air balloon. All, almost every, every, everything that's got, ever gone beyond Jupiter, and most things even at Jupiter, have used radioisotope power sources. And these, these radioisotope just creates heat, and the heat is turned into electricity with thermocouples with a thermopile. And they're not very efficient. So there's lots of waste heat, and it actually works out rather nicely that that waste heat would make a small balloon. It needs to have two or three layers to be sufficiently insulated. But just that waste heat could make a hot air balloon fly. And what's great about hot air balloons is that they can go up and down indefinitely. Um, if you you know you just let a little hot air out and they come down, close the valve, and then they fly level again. If you have a, a helium-filled balloon and you go up and down, every time you change altitude, you just use a little helium. So that um, you know a hot air balloon like this, I think, I think it's an entirely practical thing. That the hard part is obviously getting there um, and the hard part by far the hard part is communication if you have an orbiting satellite as a relay uh, then then it's, rel- it's easy for the balloon part but uh, early on in this there's uh, there are published papers anyone might like to go and look at uh, describing the communication system for Cassini Cassini you know it's a fantastic spacecraft that orbited uh, in the Saturn system for from whatever it is, 2004 until 18 months ago or whenever. Um, and just go and look up how difficult the communication system was there um, to, to understand getting signals back from a Titan balloon to Earth ain't so easy. Uh, no, I, I wouldn't um, think any part of the mission would, would be easy. Um, is this within the realm of a private sector company undertaking? And, and the reason I ask that, it, it, it seems that the planetary missions that NASA plans and implements come out of decadal survey recommendations and uh, a couple of other things. And there are years and years and years in the planning, if, if a mission even gets that far, they can be canceled. We, we've seen that happen, say, with W-1st, and they're trying to get the W-1st telescope back uh, into consideration. Um, so could a, a private 
company, let's forget for a moment if the private company could make money doing it, but an, an altruistic private company, is doing something like this on Titan or even Venus uh, possible with a private company, or is this such a huge undertaking that it's government resources only? No, I, I think a, a Venus balloon in particular could easily be privately funded. I think it's, it's kind of fascinating. If you go back that if you go back to, I don't know when, the 18th, 17th, 18th century, Herschel, people like that, Herschel, who I think this is correct, had, had the biggest telescope in the world, and he was just a wealthy individual and did it. And you know, back then, nobody cared about science. That wasn't important. And science was, was privately funded. Uh, and then, you know, government took over, and... Uh, but there's, I mean, I, somebody will put me right. The Keck, the twin Keck telescopes in Hawaii, I, I think they cost $400 million in current money. And if, it's, if, if it wasn't that, it's certainly hundreds of millions. Um, a, a Venus balloon, the, 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 only, the only expense, uh, I'm trivializing a little bit, but only a little bit. The hard part about a Venus balloon is just getting there. And um, a lot of craft, a lot of spacecraft do um, slingshot. They do. They, they go close past Venus, either to accelerate or to uh, uh, to change their trajectory. And if you know, if, if any, anyone who's listening, um, we have a really serious group of people. You give us a hundred kilos, we, we will send a privately funded balloon to Venus. Any uh, particularly challenging permit problems that you're aware of in the regulatory world that might make that even more challenging? Well, of course, yes. There's all sorts of regulation to that kind of stuff, and of course, that uh, don't talk about it. I mean, it might be difficult. Uh, so there, there might still be roadblocks, even if you have a private company wanting to do this. I, I think one would need to proceed with great diplomacy. That's for sure. <laughs> yes, but I, 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 I just, I would say I've spent my entire career persuading senior officials of one sort and another to, to let us do things slightly against their better judgment. But we didn't screw up badly yet, so. Um, so, so far, so good. Uh, listeners, uh, we're a little beyond halfway point, so I'm going to pause us here and take a break, and we'll be gone for about three minutes, which is not enough time to go to Venus or Titan, so we will come back. Uh, the number, if you want to call us, and we do uh, answer the phone during the breaks, is 1-866-687-7223, and email remains drspace, D-R-S-P-A-C-E, at thespaceshow.com. Don't go anywhere, everyone. Be right back. I'm Dr. David Livingston, creator and host of The Space Show, and I would like to share my vision with you for not only this radio program, but for space development. Space should be like any other place we choose to visit, work in, or call our home. It should be just another destination, like Tahiti, Hawaii, or any place available to us right now on Earth. When this vision becomes reality, we will be spacefaring in our culture, our economy, our society, and in our lives. 
our world will be vastly improved by countless space-related benefits, transforming our lives both in space and right here on Earth. And the space show is helping to make this vision a global reality. Welcome back, everybody. Part two with our program with Julian Nutt. And uh, I apologize for the dead air on the live show. The uh, MP3 cuts, for some reason, are not playing. And uh, they will play on the archive version, but um, this is something uh, we need to figure out. And again, I apologize. But uh, we are talking to um, Julian Knott, and we're talking about balloons, Venus, Titan, a little bit about Mars. Uh, we do have some sponsors for the second segment that I would like to tell you about because our sponsors are very, very important. The Integrated Space Plan is a highly detailed development chart showing the path to becoming a space-faring race. You can see how technology and destinations build upon one another, explore hundreds of individual elements in more detail, thespaceplan.com. Join discussions, see regular updates, and uh, you can order your full copy in color of the space plan. So, again, go to www.thespaceplan.com. And the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics is a sponsor, AIAA, and it is uh, the world's largest uh, engineering, aerospace engineering organization. And their people do great things every day for the industry because they work in the industry. Uh, five conferences per year. Check them all out at AIAA.org. They have fabulous networking. And then Celestis is a sponsor. And uh, since 1994, they have been the iconic pioneer and the only proven provider of Memorial Spaceflight Services in the world. Um, and uh, they talk about uh, facing the need to assist loved ones in the final stages of their days on this planet. Uh, and um, sometimes the dis- discussion turns to what kind of memorial service is going to be had. And if they like space or future um, thinkings or something on the dramatic side for those left behind to remember the person, uh, then a memorial space flight by Celestis can be uh, an incredible, uh, satisfying experience and one with uh, incredible closure. So um, you can get a lot more information about Celestis and their memorial flights at Celestis.com. You can also add your DNA to the flight to go with your loved one's ashes or their DNA if you don't use cremation. So again, for more information, check out Celestis, C-E-L-E-S-T-I-S dot org. So, uh, Julian, planetary protection seems to be some kind of um, an important aspect of humans on Mars. Uh, and some people love and respect it and think it's really, you know, uh, essential, and others hate it because they think it keeps you from going wherever it is you're going to go. But Titan is one of the places where, uh, in previous space show programs uh, we've had, uh, is concerned with planetary protection. So that would be not to screw up the possibility of finding life on Titan and contaminating it with Earth or bringing something back from Titan 
that might mess up Earth, i.e. Andromeda strain. So now we're talking about sending balloons to Titan uh, or, you know, eventually people. Uh, can we? Do we need to sterilize this stuff to go to Titan? I mean, what are your thoughts on possible some kind of life form on Titan? And would it be similar life to Mars, or is there enough information to know if it would be different? What, what I think... Can you hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. Oh, what I think is really fascinating about Titan, um, and I'll answer your, all, all those important points, is that there might be life that is totally unlike anything that we're used to. Um, as far as uh, planetary protection, I mean, it's important... Um, and again, it's a subject I don't know much about, but we have looked, because with a balloon, you can't just sterilize it by heating it to 110 degrees Celsius, um, but I, I don't see any reason why you shouldn't uh, um, destroy all bacteria, uh, why you shouldn't sterilize a balloon uh, by radiation, you know, because there's lots of food that's preserved that way. I don't... I, I think it's something that needs careful attention, but I don't see it as impossible. I mean, the thing about Titan, though, is that um, there's, you know, there's three parts to Titan. There's the surface, which is made of ice, basically, and there's there are oceans. It's really fascinating. There are oceans of liquid methane, liquid natural, liquid gases, probably mostly methane and ethane. Um, and then there's the outer shell, which is which is frozen water, which is ice. And then as you go in towards the center, there's an inner ocean, exactly like Europa, of liquid water. And Europa and Titan and the inside of Enceladus, these are all places with liquid water where uh, life may very well exist and life that might very well be severely harmed uh, by bacteria that arrived from Earth. You only have to look at what happened in South America um, when Europeans arrived and took smallpox and other diseases. It uh, was devastating to the, the population. Again, this, this, I know about balloons. If, if, if what I just said is not correct, somebody please correct, put me right. Um, but, I mean, the surface of Titan is uh, minus 77, uh, 84 degrees uh, Kelvin, you know, right around the boiling point of nitrogen. So any bacteria or viruses from Earth would, would certainly not survive there. And that's where I think Titan is so fascinating. Um, there are these oceans. And who is this oceans of, of, broadly speaking, natural gas? And who is to say that there's not life uh, of some sort, meaning, you know, organized, self-replicating chemistry in these oceans? Um, and I think... That's one of the reasons it would be so fascinating uh, to to go to Titan. Ralph Lorenz, who I encourage you to try and get on this show, he's just written a proposal to send submarines to short, to explore the oceans of Titan. And I think, and, and I have to say, they're even better than balloons. But a balloon to explore Titan would be terrific. Um, and and so there's the the possibility of life, and it, it has has to be built around entirely different chemistry. And then, of course, well, people say, you know, any chemical reaction would literally go a million times slower than it would on Earth. But here's the thing. If you have 
you know, there's, there's been plenty of time, there's been four billion years, plenty of time for things to have happened very, very slowly, and forms of life which are very, very slow um, could exist on Titan because there's no competition. Um, and, and, and life of this kind might exist on Earth, but it would be overtaken by the, quote, fast-moving life on Earth. There's, there's a wonderful book, if you're interested in this stuff. Okay. Uh, there's, there's a wonderful book called just called Weird Life, W-E-I-R-D, Weird Life, by a guy called David Toomey. And it's, it's, I, I would totally recommend it, except when you get to the end of the book, it's, it's really one of those books that really makes you stop and think. And I actually read it as a city. But when you get to the end, he says, well, you know, we don't know. And, I mean, and, and the other problem is um, it, that, you, you know, if we see life, will we recognize it when we see it? Um, because I think, I think again, I think this is correct. There are funguses which exist and which are literally miles across, and they're all one organism. They're genetically identical. And you know, for throughout human history, nobody ever recognised these. It's only with DNA testing that it's possible to recognise them. And there's a wonderful book, one of my favourite books, which inspired me as a kid, I suppose. Fred Hoyle, 1953, The Black Cloud. And without giving away the plot, I encourage you to go and read it. Such a visionary book for the time. Central to the theme is, you know, if we meet intelligent life, extraterrestrial intelligent life, will we recognize it when we see it? And I think, you know, SETI, as, as it's going on right now, looking for radar signals, looking for broadcast signals and so on, well, maybe but then maybe not. You know, broadcast has been around for 100 years. You know, the roundest number has been around for 100 years on Earth, and broadcast is almost over. It's almost all, uh, you know, uh, short-range communication. Uh, how many people own a radio anymore? They listen to radio stations on the Internet. Um, so, but I mean, that's what we really, that's why I'd love to see more exploration of Titan. Your best guess What's awaiting us on Titan? What's the what? I'm sorry? Your best guess yeah. about what is awaiting us on Titan. Well, that's the whole thing. I mean, I, I, I just thought so fascinating. Um, uh, the, the answer is, and the answer has to be things we've never thought of. I mean, the whole history of exploration is that, you know, when people went to the Amazon jungle in the 19th century, they discovered extraordinary things which simply didn't exist anywhere else. When, when Darwin went to the Galapagos, he discovered that you know, he recognized things which would never have occurred to him if he hadn't gone there. So the answer is the unexpected, I think. The un unexpected. Um, are we prepared to find life that would be so radically different that we might not know its life in if we come face to face with something like that, would would we even know it? I mean, what? Do you, I mean, how do you even ask the question? If 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 it's so weird, we're not going to recognize it. We wouldn't even know we came face to face with it, right? Um, would that life recognize us as life? Well, no, that's, that's exactly correct. Would it? And I mean, I'll, I'll give away the plot. In in the black cloud, you see, 
simplistically, humans get in contact with a, an intelligent being, and the intelligent being is simply an ionized cloud of dust. And the ionized cloud, they, the cloud talks to the human, and the cloud is astonished to discover that intelligent life has evolved under the crushing force of gravity. And obviously the humans are astonished to discover that a cloud of dust floating in the vacuum of space can be a sentient being. And it's only at the very end of the novel that each recognizes the other and communicates. So I, I call it the black cloud problem. We get to Titan, we might be looking right at it and have no idea what we're looking at. I think, if my memory serves me correct, there have been some Star Trek uh, uh, programs along that line with an ionized cloud. Oh, oh and I, I bet they got it, the idea from Fred Hoyle. <laughs> well, uh, probably. Yeah, Where yeah. else would they get the idea yeah, from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 I mean, I, I'm not aware of that. You know, I, I really, I've lived here for a long time. I'm an <laughs> American citizen and an English citizen. I really haven't finished my education. I haven't watched all of Star Trek. <laughs> <laughs> um, there seems to be um, one of the programs that was an ionized cloud, and, and uh, it could reproduce a life form to communicate with them, which, of course, was a beautiful, hot, space babe woman. But whether I'm getting it mixed up or something with... Uh, with, with another show, there, there's a lot of Star, Tech, Star Trek pros on the, that listen to the program. Somebody will clearly correct me on that. I think it was an original yeah. Star Trek series. Yeah. Um, yeah. They, they were stranded on some kind of a planet doing a rescue mission or something like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, listeners, we still have time for more phone calls, one eight six 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 eight seven seven two two three, And then email, of course, can continue to come in, drspace at thespaceshow.com. Uh, James is in Houston, and he says, um, given uh, how many years you have been at this, uh, do you have any realistic expectation of any sort of near-to-intermediate-term development of space propulsion that could actually get us to tighten with people to start finding out some of these answers to questions you're asking? I mean, the, the simple answer to that is I hold a couple of patents already. If I had invented it, I'd be running to the patent office. Um, I mean, and, and there is no idea that I'm aware of right now for really effectively getting to Mars in a couple of weeks. There's one thing that's really fascinating, and that is a thing called the e-sail, as in the electronic sail. And I... I I looked up just before I came on the show. There, there was quite a lot being done about that, and there's nothing happened in the last three or four years. I think probably a lot of people listening are familiar with with the solar sail, where you just have um, a large, uh, you know, vast plastic film that's, that's metalized, and, and it reflects the sunlight, and simply reflecting the sunlight... Uh, it, sunlight does have some mass equals mc squared, and just reflecting the sunlight provides some propulsion. The the e sail is entirely different. Um, the the solar wind is 
pro- it consists entirely of protons, which are flying away from the sun. Somebody correct me, 100,000 miles an hour? Anyway, it's a huge, a steady stream of protons pouring out from the, from, from the sun. And what the, the way an e-sail works is that you spread a mesh of fine wires and you charge them up with a negative charge. And so the protons, the, did I say, yes, pro, is it protons or electrons? Help, help, help. You, you said, you said pro, protons. <laughs> now I'm not sure which it is. Anyway, so you charge, oh, somebody help us. Well, what's the solar wind made of? Somebody Google quick. Anyway, you charge it up. I think, I think it's, I think it's the protons. And you charge up the, the, the wires with a positive charge and it repels the proton back towards the, back towards the sun. And that generates um, a force, and and you can accelerate to great speed with it. And from and it, it's the simplest imaginable system. You just have an, a, a band of you know have an electric charge generator and, and a wire mesh, and you're entirely getting the energy from outside. Um, and for most places, it's no use because. It allows you to accelerate, but it has no way to decelerate. But Titan, and again, you know, people who really understand rockets put me right, but Titan, you can just fly straight in. And if you, if you got up to 25,000 miles an hour, uh, for you know, Apollo re-entry, for, bottom, for want of a better number, um, and if you travel a billion miles at that speed, it's a relatively short journey, and then... When you get to Titan, it has this very tall uh, atmosphere, and it's a perfect place to re-enter with a heat shield. So that a very simple craft could could get to Titan and launch a balloon. But the e-sail at the moment doesn't seem to be making any progress. Uh, Has it been demonstrated or tested in any way? Well, I I know uh, a couple of years ago, they were going to, uh, uh, you know, they were going to launch a, a CubeSat to demonstrate it, I believe. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure about that. Well, uh, if any listeners are listening and you uh, have any information or know anything about the e-sale, um, let us know and uh, call us or post a comment on the blog if you're listening to archives. Uh, but it, it sounds uh, interesting, and we haven't really talked about that on the space show before. So um, we should talk about that if it's uh, a viable concept. Um, when you talk with uh, people and you go to events or conferences, is there interest in um, humans going to, to Titan? I mean, I, I know you've referred to Mars as being boring, but... Mar- Mars has everybody's focus. I mean, look, look and, you, and you've got these huge personalities bigger than life, like Elon Musk, uh, that every other word out of his mouth is, is Mars um, or Tesla. And, you know, yeah. So uh, are you finding other people interested in Titan? Does it come up for people? Well, I think in the science community, people look on it as absolutely fascinating. But again, there's since nobody has any conceivable way of, uh, uh, of sending humans there and much less bringing them back. I mean, if you're going to go with a chemical rocket and take five years to get there... Uh, and it's a got, non-starter. 
it, it, yeah, it's just not totally yeah. unrealistic. Totally. Uh, even if you go with an electric Tesla with great batteries, it's going to be a non-starter, right? Yeah, and I mean, you know, presumably, um, you know, I think Elon Musk, Musk I, I, he says he wants to die on Mars. Well, he may if he launches himself over there. So he well, may, I, I, but I, he I, may get his wish. He might get his wish, but I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable to think he might get to Mars on a one-way trip and, and successfully live there. Um, especially if it takes another 10 or 15 years to do it and because we'll advance enough to where, you know, he'll probably have life support and other things more advanced that, that he needs that maybe yeah. we don't have yet. You have another caller. Are you ready for this one? Of course. Okay. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the show today. Who are you? Where are you, please? Are you on Titan? Am I on Titan? Yes. <laughs> Not yet. Uh, hello, Don Davis here. I, uh, I'm interested in the, the balloons more than I used to be as, as uh, planetary probes, and I'm glad to hear people talking about this and thinking about this. The uh, main item I'm interested in in any such payload, being a, a visual uh, image fellow and artist, is what kind of camera it would be uh, brought to Titan or to Venus. And uh, I wonder how much thought you've given it that well but i mean i think cameras advanced by i would think it's fascinating some technologies change and some don't bricks remain unchanged for three thousand years automobile tires remain unchanged for getting on for 130 years or something jet engines remain unchanged for 30 years cameras by contrast evolve every hour on the hour we we use a lot of cameras in balloons for one reason and another and um, I think that's the least of the problem. Well, I'm glad to uh, to hear your your you sound enthusiastic about bringing cameras on these. And uh, I, I think that uh, such a mission should have well, <laughs> if I had my druthers, an array of cameras. But one of them would be a fisheye camera that would encompass the view horizon to horizon. Uh, maybe at least 4K across, and, and I don't know, every several minutes obtain such a view. Uh, and uh, then as the probe drifts along, you would get you know, a sense of the terrain. You could begin to get stereo maps from how things appear displaced down below if there's any significant relief. And um, I would have camera, at least one, or maybe another fisheye camera looking upwards as well, so the dynamics of the clouds could be uh, looked at. That both look what's above and what's below, on the point of view of uh, of a, a probe, would be uh, revelatory. I think in ways that uh, we can't foresee. The weather people would see dynamics of the, of the clouds and such. The um, geologists would uh, have a fairly continuous. Um, View and the, the big question is though. Whenever I talk to people in the know about cameras, is the bandwidth and uh, getting the data uh, from such a, uh, a distant thing, particularly in the case of Titan. So I'm wondering, uh, have you thought about how the data would be relayed from at least from Titan? Whether we'd have a, a, another spacecraft nearby that. Uh, uh, would relay the data, or whether it would be some kind of antenna or something broadcasting directly to Earth. Well, I mean, um, just on the subject of cameras, I mean, uh, if you Google for 
ESA, as in European Space Agency. If you Google for ESA Titan pictures, um, the Huygens probe that landed on the surface of Titan in 2005 and launched in 1997, so, you know, 20-year-old camera technology, that took some astonishing pictures. Of yes, it did for its time, but uh, and I'm a little fuzzy on this, but I think the orbiter was used to relay the data. Uh, that I don't know if that much data could have been broadcast directly to Earth. So uh, what is going to accompany as such a balloon to its target is, is something that, uh, at least for me, who was people like me interested in, in images, which is really what the best data for general consumption by the public, in, in my prejudice view, uh, that that's going to require careful thought as to how to relay such data. And uh, I don't know if you're planning an orbiter or a, uh, a flyby spacecraft uh, at, at the same time to meet that need, but... Uh, uh, as, a, as somebody very interested in images, um, I can't help but uh, think about the infrastructure needed to, to do that. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned... You, I'm sorry, go on. I'm oh, well, I mean, I, 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 what you say about the importance of images, one picture is worth 10 million <laughs> talking heads. Um, when, I, I think this is historically correct, when they were going to send Viking, when plans were being men, made to send Viking to Mars, in, 19, in the, you know, the early 70s, I think it landed in 76, um, the scientists were saying, we don't need cameras, what's the good of those? And other people said, well, for heaven's sake, you've got to send a camera. And, of course, what does anybody care about? Well, the, the pictures that come back from the surface. And The spirit of what you say is absolutely true. Uh, it, it, the details may be a little off, but uh, I do recall debates in uh, the Pioneer probes, for instance, when they went out to Jupiter and Saturn. There was uh, a lot of uh, skepticism, or maybe they were intimidated by the technical issues, about sending a camera to a spacecraft going to Jupiter and Saturn. What are we going to look at? Just the clouds on top oh, of yeah, the yeah, yeah. giants? <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, Imaging has always has a, had an uphill struggle in, in getting priority, uh, and uh, while it has been accommodated, and in the case of the Huygens probe, I mean, yes, even those those many images, half of which we lost due to a technical screw-up, by the way, but yeah, those were revelatory, and that last series of views from the surface, seeing the, the, the yep. icy uh, rubble in the foreground and the bright sky, uh, were just... Uh, that alone was worth every penny put into that probe. Yeah. Uh, now you mentioned you were uh, you had forgotten or you had kind of dismissed uh, Mars balloons. Well, well I, I just because uh, you mentioned a whole bunch of things. I mean, you're absolutely correct. The way that Huygens worked was the data was sent back through the Cassini spacecraft, um, and as I said a long time ago, back in the program. If you think if you think sending signals back is easy, just pull down one of the papers describing the the communication system for Cassini. Just immensely complicated. Um, I think I mean on on the subject of Mars balloons, I don't see them as being very valuable. I mean, this is one man's opinion. I don't see them as being very valuable for anything except what a caller brought up earlier, and that is understanding the atmosphere. Balloons for modeling the atmosphere, I mean, they're everything. Um, you know, there's, there's 1,200 weather balloons re released every 12 hours 
and they're absolutely central to the world's weather forecasting. Well, I think this again, if you're if you have uh, cameras on these things, looking down especially and um, around and uh, getting very good uh, close-up views of a lot of interesting terrain uh, could be justified. It would be like a rover, but at a overview point of view, that would be drifting. Uh, over immense distances, I think that alone, particularly since you have a lot easier time, I think, photographing things from Mars than you would from, say, Venus. Venus is another very attractive target for such a mission, but again, you need... Really, I would have a camera that captures a bit more than 180 degrees so we can see the horizon in the entire shot. Uh, unfortunately, the lighting on Venus is always very, um, I mean, it's almost a uniform bright sky from, from what the experts tell me. So even in the afternoons, you're going to get very little uh, directional lighting. So, so the cameras are going to have to uh, obtain, like, stereo data just by drifting over the region and, and reconstructing the, the heights that way, I, I, I'm afraid. Although stuff near the horizon, you're going to see mountains and uh, uh, crevasses and volcanoes and such things, but now Venus, I, I would I would say I would suggest that Venus should be a primary target for a balloon mission, just because Venus has been neglected for so many years. Our our nearest neighboring world, and it's got fascinating things to show us and to tell us. I'm, I'm certain, and so a balloon would probably be a an ideal way to. Uh, get overviews and uh, sort of fill in some of the many unknowns of, of this of this hostile but intriguing plan. Yeah, and I mean, I'm absolutely, I totally agree with you that uh, the, the first, by far the, the most practical and the first place to send balloons is, is definitely to Venus. On to Venus, guys. Well, hopefully uh, cameras won't be neglected when hardware is finally being put together for such missions. Yeah, but I, I think, you know, what you also said yourself a few minutes back was the problem is not so much the cameras, the problem is getting the data back, um, even with, you know, the cleverest compression. Um, Which brings to mind, uh, if, is there any plan for any hardware near, uh, you know, flying by the planet, maybe that releases the balloon that, that can relay the data. Or in the case of Venus, it's a lot closer. Maybe the option exists of having a deployable antenna on the thing that can uh, broadcast the data directly to Earth. It would certainly be an easier task, I would think, than from Titan. Well, and the other thing I think is very interesting is the possibilities of optical communication. Um People point telescopes. We didn't talk at all about big scientific balloons. People fly telescopes weighing up to a couple of tons at 120,000 feet under big plastic balloons. And people can point those telescopes with an accuracy of a fraction, like a half of an arc second. Um, they don't bounce all over the place? No, because, no, because they're flying in relatively still air and... Um, you have a sort of primary pointing system and a secondary pointing system, and that accuracy is possible. And with that, if you have a balloon that's flying above the Venus clouds, then I think you could use a, a laser beam to send data back. And even if it only pointed some of the time, a laser beam allows for such a vastly great, greater data rate um, that even if you could only transmit back for an hour at a time, you'd still get lots of data back. 
that's a worthy consideration. I, I, I would worry that if you're above the clouds, you're not going to be able to photograph the surface. But if the balloon can bob up and down in a controlled fashion where it gets down near the surface and then obtains a lot of the data and then goes way up and, and relays it in that manner, that I mean, you know, it gets fancier and, and you know more costly as you add these, uh, these yeah, options there. The, the trouble with that is that um, it's out at 50 kilometers, the balloon can fly nicely, but as you get lower down into the atmosphere, but I'm a little out of my depth here, but by the time you get below the cloud layer, you'd be at a level that's much too hot for any conventional balloon. There. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right. Uh, I, I've seen interesting schemes where uh, some kind of balloon would, would carry a dangle of instrument package that would actually... Yeah, touch the surface upon occasion, yeah. and then yeah. act as a lander, and then the uh, balloon would uh, would somehow rise again and inflate itself or whatever, and uh, go to some other location. I guess I'm more interested in um, near surface stuff, so we can see the surface. Of course, yes, of course, of course. Well, it's interesting that I hope the uh, idea takes wing, and uh, we get this get some new data and hopefully some images from such places. Okay. Thanks for calling in again, Don. Good to hear from you again. Thank you kindly. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Listeners, there's still a little bit of time if you want to give us a call. And our number, again, is 1-866-687-7223. While Don was talking, we had an email from uh, Mark in Petaluma uh, based on an earlier comment of yours. And he says, protons fly out from the sun, and that is the solar wind. So this refers back to when you were talking about the e-sail. <laughs> Thank you for saving me from my embarrassment. <laughs> well, you got it right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you should not be embarrassed at all. Um, do you think, um, we, I mean, we talk about nuclear propulsion as being the most likely advanced propulsion that that, that is at least within our grasp. Um, is that fast enough for your liking? I mean, does that mean an ion engine powered by with a nuclear reactor? I, I know there is a proposal that exists to to send, uh, you know, to travel to Mars in a nuclear-powered spacecraft. And as far as I know... It, it uses an ion engine and accelerates for half the time and then decelerates for the second half and would get there in a few weeks. Um, I don't know. I've heard nuclear, you know, at best a couple of months. Um, but, you know, I've heard everything and I see nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been doing the space show. We're, we're coming up on 18 years. It's going to be uh, yeah. 18 years in June. So uh, we just yeah. we just crossed the 17th year. Uh, boundary, and we've been talking about nuclear propulsion since the first year of the space show. And and I have had guests on fairly regularly. Uh, I've never had anyone against nuclear propulsion, never that I can remember. Um, different kinds of nuclear propulsion, nuclear propulsion history, going back to the early days in Nevada, this, that, and the other, and. Uh, you know, if we could build a, a, a nuclear engine based on the rhetoric of the space show guest alone, we'd be there. <laughs> <laughs> but that isn't the way the world works. Yes, it's usually me as a balloonist, I guess. 
I get the jokes about hot air. Hot air, yeah. Well, you know, if you could, I guess, yeah. get all that hot air from Washington D.C. Uh, and and yep. and preserve it somehow. Yep. Um, man, we we could get rid of the electric power grid. Probably we could do lots with that. You have another caller online. Hold on. Uh, hi, caller. Welcome to the show. Who are you? Where are you, please? Oh, this is John in Fort Worth. Hi, John in Fort Worth. Yeah, this, um, well, uh, what they're talking about also, uh, the, is also this, uh, dipole drive, which is a variant of the same thing he's talking well, about. Well, only Zubrin is talking about that. Come on. Well, it's out now. I mean, I think that it's a variant <laughs> of it, though. The, they're the same basic principle in terms of using a solar wind. Um, I, I don't know if our guest is familiar with... Not, not at all. So uh, yeah. Bob Zubrin posted a, a lengthy yep. article on Centauri Dreams about 10 days ago oh. uh, on uh, proposing the Dipole, D-I-P-O-L-D, drive. Oh, okay. uh, if you're interested, I'll send it to you if you don't access Centauri Dreams. But, oh, I'd love to see it. Yeah. Um, so here, let me make a note to, to, yeah. send, it to, to send it to you. Um but um, uh, it's, uh, I guess, a Zubrin proposal. I, I'm, I'm not seeing a whole lot of activity picking up on it. I haven't seen any subsequent articles. Have you, John? No, but I mean, it's 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 in the same basic technology issue. I think the the, the reflecting the solar wind and you, the the proton thrust is the is the dominant factor. That's an I think electrons cost cost. Somebody's reading looking at it here it says two percent. You know, that's not a big negative factor for the momentum you get reflecting the protons. And so, yeah, it's a, but but I, I'm just saying that the idea is, is is being considered by various people. The general idea of use, use, reacting against the solar wind. He's probably going to talk about it at the uh, upcoming Mars Society conference, which for you. Julian is yeah. not too far away yeah. in Pasadena. Oh, I go to Pasadena all the time. In later in October, later in in August, August twenty uh, third uh, through twenty fifth or twenty sixth. Are you going to zap over there in a balloon and well, check I'll, it out? Well, I'll, I'll I'll take my blimp. <laughs> <laughs> You'll take your blimp. Um, well, that's not too far from you. So yeah. you you know, yeah. um, uh, do you know Doctor Zubrin? I've met him, but uh, he wouldn't remember me. Well. Um, uh, that might be interesting if yeah, he's going yeah. to, uh, but but he's real focused on Mars, so yeah. um, I, I'm not so sure how inviting he would be for uh, Venus or Titan. I, I I googled for the dipole drive and came right up with the page Centauri Dream. Oh, okay, then I don't need to forward June, it to you. June 29. No, there it is. Yeah, the, there you have it. So you yep. you can go through that at, at your yeah. thing, and then. Uh, Listeners, any of you who are interested, this will save me from posting it in the archives. Just uh, Google Dipole Drive, Bob Zubrin, D-I-P-O-L-D, and uh, you can have the paper that John Hunt is referring to. Yeah. What else, well, it's, John? It's actually P-O-L-E. It's like P O L E. Yeah, not yeah, D. Yeah, like a electric dipole, like positive negative charges on a separated. Yeah, I meant to say E, but sometimes for me they sound the same on radio. So yeah, okay. Um, uh, what else is on your mind, John? Well, no, that's. Uh, I guess the only thing is that you're, you're really uh, there is a lot of delta v to get down to Titan, and they're in this Saturn gravitational field. Is that? This morning I haven't looked that up, but I would think it would be pretty steep to get down there, wouldn't it? That's outside what I know about, it, but I, I I think you. I don't believe there's any reason why you can't. 
fly straight in. Um, remember that the, the Huygens probe, the way that that was launched, uh, it was astonishing that I think a month before it entered the atmosphere of Titan, um, the Cassini probe was pointed very precisely at Titan, mm-hmm. and then, then Huygens was released and coasted, I think it was for a month, it was certainly a week or so, and I think it's just astonishing that people could, you know, that the craft could be navigated with that accuracy, and then it, it just went straight in. Um, I, 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 I don't know enough about the gravity field from... from yeah, I'm not sure either, but, but it, it is an interesting idea, though, of having balloons on Titan. Huh? <laughs> oh, it's not just... It's an, not just interesting, it's a terrific idea. And, yes. and if, if you put advertising logos on it, you uh, might be able to pay for the mission, right? Yeah, that's right. Coca-Cola guess, on, Mar- on Titan? I mean, a, t- a Titan balloon, I mean, the, uh, the only expense, <laughs> quote-unquote, is getting there. Um, like, I mean, for the balloons themselves, don't you, you know, we're talking thousands or tens of thousands of dollars. Um, the, the, the balloons themselves are not difficult, but it's the getting there and it's the communication, which are order of magnitude different. Orders of magnitude different. Yeah, that's true. That's why uh, the idea of uh, talking about life in these kind of environments, would, would, would we probably think about life that would have a kind of a slower time scale than we would have? Like, they, well, they would... Yeah, and take a day to do what we do in a, a few minutes or something. Well, I think all, all, all the, I mean, that's what's fascinating. And, and nobody can say it's true or it's rubbish, that it, life could go on a million times slower. And because it faces no competition, um, you know, if, if some plant has been growing for a million years, it would be as interesting as a plant one year old on Earth. Who is to say mm-hmm. such things don't exist? Well, one of the things I think is charming about a balloon is that um, a Titan balloon could very easily fly from a few feet above the surface, a couple of meters above the surface, and any balloon should be designed so that if it bumps on the surface, it won't be damaged. Um, and it can go up to, you know, thousands of meters or even tens of thousands of meters. So you can look from the smallest to the largest. Yeah, well, that's interesting. There's also uh, then there's some there's in the balloon area, but there's also thoughts about life on Europa, right? And another area that the people are speculating there could be life in the solar system. Well, and and I mean the Europa mission, as far as I'm aware, Europa mission is progressing steadily. And I mean, so for uh, Europa, for Titan, for Enceladus, these three places at least all have a liquid core. You know, they're frozen on the outside, but there's liquid water inside. And again, this is slightly outside my field, but as I understand it, uh, Europa has a significant magnetic field, and that shows that the liquid water ocean under the, under the solid ice covering uh, is conducting. Conduct electricity, meaning it's briny. It's got minerals in it. Um, mm. And so... There is, uh, you know, all, all liquid water with minerals in it. So, wow! Off. I think I think I think there's a lot. Of, again, you know, who am I? Is this is outside what I really know about? I think you find a lot of people who say that the oceans of Europa 
are the most likely place to find uh, life outside of Earth. Can you see the marketing potential here? <laughs> Bottled Europa mineral-enriched water. <laughs> the secrets of the cosmos for eternal uh, life yeah. and prosperity. <laughs> and only $500 a bottle because of the extreme cost and challenges of getting it back to Earth. Can you imagine the demand for Europa mineral water as, uh, a, as a supplement or something like that? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, no, I love it. I love I, it. I, I, I'd go for that. <laughs> but I think it's, I, think, I don't know about $500 a bottle. It might five, be more than five, might five, be $500,000 a yeah, bottle. Exactly, yes. <laughs> but people would, it's amazing what people spend money on. They'd buy it. They'd buy it. Well, somebody at the, at the fair a couple of weeks ago in, uh, I think it was in New York, bought hot dog water for $35 a bottle. Oh. With a hot dog in it that oh, was supposed oh. to promise them all sorts of health benefits. And then down in the small print, it said this hot dog water is a performance art project, and nobody bothered to read the small print. Uh, uh. So they <laughs> bought hot dog water with all the claims to it. Uh, so, yeah, they'd buy Europa mineral water. Hell, somebody might sell it right now, even though we've not been there, and say it comes in on meteorites or something. Uh. But I don't, I don't, John, you want to go into business? <laughs> Space show Europa water, you know, for a, just a, a measly $500 contribution to one giant leap foundation. Uh, what else, John? I guess that's it. I just I thought I'd check in on that. Okay, good to hear from you. Thank you for calling. Okay. Uh, we're coming up on a on a two hour show. Is there anything we've forgotten to talk about or not ask you or we should have asked you or that you want to mention before we? log off for the day no i mean thank you so much for having me on the show i love this kind of conversation well and, and how wonderful to have two hours as opposed to a 30 second sound bite <laughs> we'll we'll have to do it again but i i'd love to do it again when there's actual real developmental news about going to venus or titan or even going to mars <laughs> you know someplace yeah. rather than than just you know the rhetoric that we're going to have a policy to do this or that or the other yeah. Uh, but um, we 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 seem to be stuck for some reason, don't we? We're we're rhetoric rich, but we're not action rich. But I mean, it, you know, it, it, there's a guy whose name escapes me, who's a futurologist, and he says uh, the future arrives in unexpected ways on its own timetable. And I think it's fascinating if you look at history. So somebody invented the steam locomotive, and within 10 and 15 years, there were steam trains everywhere. Somebody invented the personal computer. Within 10 years, there were personal computers everywhere. Um, and, you know, just... No, I, I... And I think that saying, I don't remember who said it either, but I'm familiar with it, is very, very true. Yeah. So you, yeah. you, you always have to be open and um, you can't have any preconceived expectations of where it's going to come from yeah so and yeah. hopefully you're awake enough to not miss it when it comes yeah yeah and and ask for a second chance because you don't get very many second chances uh, from the universe do you yeah yeah paul paul saffo paul s-a-f-f-o he said that um, yeah i'm familiar with him the future arrives on its own timetable in unexpected ways because i mean he was sort of Broadly skeptical, of, even though he's a futurologist, he's broadly 
skeptical about forecasting anything. <laughs> I have one quick question that came in by email. Of course. And this is Carrie, K-E-R-R-Y, yeah. from Salt Lake City. Yeah. Uh, are you currently teaching classes at UCSB? Do you teach any of them online where those of us interested in these topics can join your class even if it's just to audit the class rather than for credit? Oh, I, I give a class once a year to um, 17-year-olds at, at UCSB. I do not run a... Um, um, I, I have an appointment at UCSB, but I'm not allowed to call myself a professor. Um, and I do not teach an online class. Oh, I'm sorry, the, where's the caller? Is the caller or email? Where's the space? Excuse me, Salt Lake City. Oh, well, next time you're in California, come to... the let me take you to lunch at the beach. <laughs> that that is only a, that's only an invitation to the one emailer from Salt Lake City. <laughs> um, you'll get inundated by people coming uh, I, anyway. I'm sure, right? Uh, and yeah. they'll all say, "Hey, I'm Carrie from Salt Lake City." <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> and un- unless you ask for an ID, yeah, that's um, right. You know, right. you'll have a lot of Carries from Salt Lake City uh, visiting you. Very funny. I should have been more careful. That that's right. And, and, yeah. Uh, but uh, listen, uh, and then hopefully those carries will all call in on an open line show and tell us about their experience with you on the beach. Uh, yes, very nice here at the beach. That's Barbara. <laughs> um, it has been great talking to you, and I do look forward to uh, talking to you again down the road. And yeah. uh, these are interesting questions, and I, I would love to see development go on with some of these ideas and, and concepts. So maybe... Maybe uh, some researchers or some students someplace will pick up on it and, and push it all forward. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Th- thank I'm you, re- Julian. It was really fun. Thank you. Uh, and listeners, that's it for today. Again, all space shows are regular this week, regular time. Everybody have a great rest of the weekend, and um, we will be back tomorrow, 2 p.m., California time. Thank you all. Goodbye from Julian. Goodbye from David. And goodbye from the space show. 